Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. In 401 BC, during the Greek Golden Age, Persian Prince Cyrus the Younger hired a mercenary army of Greek soldiers to fight a civil war against his brother. Among the soldiers was the adventurer Xenophon, who later chronicled the expedition in his work Anabasis. Xenophon and his companions met the enemy Persian army at the Battle of Conaxa on the banks of the Euphrates River, and there they gave the Persian prince Cyrus value for his money. The Greek heavy troops beat down the Persians and pushed them back, delivering a victory for the man who had hired them. But when the dust of the battle had settled, they heard the bad news. Cyrus the Younger had been killed, knocked from his horse by a common soldier. His claim to the throne died with him. The Greeks were left leaderless in a foreign land. But as they fled back across the deserts of what is today Iraq, they stumbled upon something that must have made them stop in their tracks. It was the enormous crumbling of a ruined city, completely deserted and full of the vast ruins of ancient buildings. Xenophon was struck by the haunting beauty of these empty places and wondered who had built them. But with their enemies pressing in on their heels, the Greeks had no time to stop and had to keep on moving. But from the writings of Xenophon, it is clear that the sight of these lonely, crumbling ruins left a lasting impression on him. For days afterwards, he asked any local person he encountered Who had built these enormous constructions all alone out there in the desert? No one that spoke to him could tell him anything about them. And so he thought if so many people had once lived here, what in all the world could have happened to this place? Today we know the names of this city and others that Xenophon passed by. And we also know the fate of its people. This was the city of Nineveh and the people of Assyria. We know this because 2,300 years after Xenophon, in the Victorian era, archaeologist Sir Austin Henry Layard stumbled upon the same ruins documented by Xenophon. Like Xenophon, Layard was struck by the immensity of what these ruins represented. Their silent testimony to the vast gulf of time that separates them from us. And yet when we remember that at the time that Xenophon himself had stumbled across these ruins, the first stones of the Parthenon in Athens had been laid 50 years earlier. The Colosseum in Rome would not be built for another 500 years. Yet the city of Nineveh had already been laid waste as an ancient ruin for more than two centuries. Once a mighty city, 
home to hundreds of thousands of people and containing some of the most beautiful art and architecture of the ancient world, now left to the sands of time with barely a trace of habitation, save the occasional fragment of pottery laid bare by the winter rains. What happened? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> Today, we are going to be continuing on in our whistle-stop tour of this short yet intense prophetic book of Nahum. You can think of Nahum as part two of the book of Jonah, which we'd studied previously this year through the month of January and into early February. Uh, if you weren't here last week, it may seem like you're coming in halfway on an action movie, like right at the intense moment of that crazy violent battle scene. So there's a bit of context that's going to be missing here. I'm going to try and do my best to relay back to last week as we go. But if you do find yourself having questions, and I expect you would, um, then I'd encourage you to get online and have a listen to last week's message. And you're always welcome to come find me as well. Uh, today we're going to be looking at these last two chapters that Katie Ray read out for us. Uh, I confess I found this very difficult to study and also to outline. Um, some preachers don't bother with outlines. I'm an outline kind of guy. It's the way my brain works. But the reason why I struggled really with this outline is encapsulated in a succinct statement by Kenneth Barker, an uh, Old Testament commentator. When confronted with these chapters, he says, Bible students looking for deeper theological secrets and intricate theological messages will face disappointment. In these chapters, Nahum offers basically one truth. I am against you, declares the Lord. I think Barker's right. Now, that's the bleak, singular message from this, and I would not be doing the text justice if I tries to squeeze something else out of it and, and suggest something rosy when it's not there. That phrase, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, is repeated twice here, once in chapter 2, referring specifically to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and once in chapter 3, referring to the Assyrian Empire as a whole. But as I studied this more and more, uh, I started to see some patterns of imagery here that I thought would be very interesting for us to trace out here as a church, specifically the imagery of clothing. So don't worry, I've got an outline for you. You can exhale now. The book of Nahum, shelter and shame. That's our series title. The shelter aspect is what we looked at last week in chapter 1. Those who take refuge in the Lord, 1-7, who are clothed in God's character, God's actions, and who will claim God's victory as their own. The shame aspect is what we're going to be looking at today in chapters 2 and 3, and it's the fate of those who do not take refuge in the Lord, who do not have him as their stronghold and therefore find themselves exposed, vulnerable, having to find their own shelter apart from God. So with that as our outline for today, I want you to see on the screen here what we're going to be looking at in three parts. Number one, Wicked countenance, as the Assyrians dress for battle. Secondly, wicked conduct, as the Assyrians are stripped and given to whoring. And thirdly, wicked defeated, as their nakedness is exposed to the nations. Now, these points essentially mirror, by way of outline, what we looked at last week. If last week we found shelter in God's character, God's actions, and God's victory, then this week we find shame in wicked countenance, wicked conduct, and wicked defeated. 
Shelter? Shame. Make sense? We'll see. Let's pray. Let's get into it. Our Heavenly Father, uh, confrontation is never easy. It's never comfortable. Uh, But in as much as there is good news to behold in the Christian story, so there is bad news with which we must reckon. So, Father, today as we scrape the surface of this text, we ask that you would confront us in a way that is true to the name of Nahum, that is comforting. And for that to happen, Lord, we need to let go of our self-sufficiency. I ask, Lord, that you would remind us gently of the truth and the truths inherent in our own in our own salvation, that we would come to appreciate the fullness of who you are and what you have done in Jesus. Amen. Okay, number one here, wicked countenance. By wicked countenance, I mean how the wicked, how the Assyrians in this case, appear or present themselves, their expression, their posture, uh, their attitude, their response, their countenance before the reality of God's judgment, before the character of God. Look here with me, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Here we are thrust into the fray without really knowing what's going on. I mean, we wrapped up Nahum chapter 1 last week with the herald of good news. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. But if you're a Judean reading Nahum at that time, remember Nahum wrote about 30 to 50 years before this prophecy of the fall of Nineveh came true. And at that time, uh, the Assyrian Empire was near the peak of its prosperity. So if you were a Judean reading this, you'd be thinking, how on earth is this the case? In what way is the Assyrian Empire going to be cut off? They had already destroyed northern Israel, the ten tribes, butchered them and scattered them amongst the different cities and people groups of the Assyrian Empire, and they were knocking on the door of southern Israel. You can read about this in two kings, Sennacherib, who comes down and rallies against the gates with King Hezekiah and Isaiah on the inside. How on earth are they going to be cut off? Well, that's what Nahum unpacks here for us, how the Lord is going to cut off Assyria and restore the majesty of Jacob by sending the scatterer to come up against Assyria, against her capital city, Nineveh. We aren't told who the scatterer is in Nahum, uh, but it's not a mystery. We know from the history books that this is a coalition of forces between the Medes, the Median Empire, and the Babylonians. There is a long history here. If I had 12 weeks with you on these two chapters, we would be ripping right through it. But if you'd like to know more, please come and talk to me. I'm just going to footnote that and walk past. Well, actually, I'll just say this much. It, like, it, it was so interesting that the Assyrian empires had kind of paved the way of their own destruction here in, insofar as how they took out some other people. They literally just cleared the bushes and these guys walked right in. Very interesting how it worked out. Anyway, this coalition was, it was really a nightmare for the Assyrian empire. Their enemies had united together and come against them at a time when they just started to experience some political upheaval, some environmental um, struggles as well. 
And so all of these nations band together and charge at them. But even in her weakened state, this Assyrian army, uh, it was still a formidable force. And it made the Medes and the Babylonians pay for every inch of land. And so we read here, finally, by the time they get to the capital city of Nineveh, you don't walk into a country and take the capital city on day one. There's been a lot of brutal bloodshed all the way up to this point. By the time we finally get to what we're reading here, we see even now that a wounded dog can bite. Collect all your strength, men of Nineveh. Pull together your provisions. Man the ramparts. Be awake and alert. Watch the road. Ready yourselves. Dress for battle. Now, as Christians, how do we dress for battle? Ephesians 6, put on the whole armour of God. And every piece of armour in Ephesians 6 is a provision of the Lord. We are clothed in him, in his provision. And in that sense, we shelter in him, in his provision or covering of us, right? Like Nahum 1.7, the Lord is our stronghold, our refuge in the days of trouble. Now, that doesn't mean that we're passive as Christians. Ephesians 6 is all about active spiritual warfare. What it means, though, is that we don't fight by our own collective strength, by our own provisions. We don't fight the way the Assyrians are here. They have no strength but their own collective strength. No shelter apart from their own provisions. No armour apart from their own battle dress. Now, throughout the Bible, the imagery of dress or clothing is used in a number of different ways to convey spiritual truths. Clothing is depicted as a symbol of identity, humility, unity, transformation, righteousness, and the very first mention of clothing is associated with or implied by shame. When we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we find ourselves in the Garden of Eden. Before there was any sin, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the author makes the point of saying, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now think about that. It's kind of odd for the author to make a comment about Adam and Eve being naked and not ashamed, unless, of course, they were anticipating some sort of shame. And as we know, hate to be a spoiler alert, that's precisely what happened a couple of paragraphs later. Adam and Eve sin, and we read, quote, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, Genesis 3, 7. So God comes and he calls out for them, where are you? And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid in the trees of the garden. What we learn from the beginning here as it relates to our passage in Nahum is that shame was never meant to be a part of the human experience. In the beginning, people were naked without shame, fully known without feeling exposed without feeling the need to cover up or self-protect, without the need to dress for battle. No sin, no shame, no insecurities, no worries about being judged. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before each other's eyes seems to be the implication there. Shame comes before watching eyes. But when there is sin, when there is shame, 
it almost comes as a response to the guilt of the sin. I mean, when you're guilty, it may not be something that you feel. You could be guilty and not feel that you're guilty. But shame tends to be subjective in that we feel shame in our whole person. Where guilty might say, I did something wrong, shame says, I am the wrong. I am unpresentable before certain eyes. I cannot let this guilt, whether the guilt of something I have done or the guilt of what somebody else has done to me, I cannot let this be seen by anyone else. So shame tries to hide. It tries to shelter this guilt so that it cannot be seen. Seen by who? By us. We can feel ashamed of ourselves by our own eyes, by the eyes of others. Adam and Eve were naked. And by the eyes of God. Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves because they saw each other's nakedness. They hid amongst the trees because they were afraid of God. Here in Nahum chapter 2, Assyria dressed for battle because the scatterer had come against them and they hid behind their mighty walls of Nineveh. So let me ask you, what do you do with your shame? What are your coping mechanisms? What shelter do you seek when you are exposed? Food? Sex? Mind-numbing Netflix? Work? Study? Preaching? Alcohol? None of these are bad things, right? That's not the point here. I'm asking where do we retreat to when we feel shame to escape? Shame seeks out shelter. It's a defensive mechanism in some respects, like what we see here with the Assyrians, right? But look what happens next when we retreat into our little shelters because of our shame. The Medes and the Babylonians, they press in on Nineveh. Verse 3, watch what happens. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He, the Assyrian, remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up, better late than never. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. There was a big flood at this time. If I was just to press pause on this, it's very interesting to read the history. Invite me back. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry. No one turns back. Here we get a vivid, sharp, penetrating description of the siege of Nineveh as the Medes and the Babylonians poured into the city. Again, there's a lot of historical detail here about literal fulfillments of some of these descriptions, which you just can't dive into. But it's happened the way Nahum has prophesied, right? That's important. He wrote this 30 to 50 years prior to this happening. And he's writing it here like it's already happened. He wasn't, you know, suggesting this might happen. He was saying this with certainty. 
The Assyrians are jumbling one over another. They're confused. They're scattered. They're disoriented. The perspective is constantly shifting. It's like a crazy battle scene in a movie. You know, you just bang, bang here. You don't even know who's stabbing who. Moving from the battle lines over the walls, then it's like the whole thing just comes to a crashing finish and you, you don't even know what had happened. Before we know what's happened, it's done. And then we continue to read through chapter 3 and we get another domination of the senses, but this time not with the sights and the sounds of flashing and clanging swords, but the smells of the dead and the dying. Bodies, piles and piles of bodies, people groaning with gaping wounds and no one there to help them. 3-1, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. This is nauseating in its detail. Uh, we can see evidence of the fierce battle that Nahum records here at Nineveh in the archaeological record. Excavations in Nineveh's southeastern gate, the Halsey Gate, have found there in the ground skeletons lying one on top of another on the cobbled pavement. The bodies of horses also litter this gateway, along with countless iron spearheads and arrows, all of them lying exactly where they fell, as a testimony to what Nahum has written here in this last-ditch effort of the Assyrian people over 2,600 years ago. What's the point of all of this graphic detail? Well, it's like Nahum wants his readers to feel as though we were right there in the middle of this battle to convey an overwhelming sense of the certainty of this prophecy at the time it was written for the people of Judah. God's judgment is certain. It's going to happen. It did happen. And if you don't like the Bible, you can look at archaeology to see that it happened. This happened. Who can stand against the Lord? No one, for he is great in power. Nineveh fell in the year 612 BC. And when we zoom out and view this from the perspective of Scripture going way back to the beginning in Genesis, the message seems loud and clear. There is no refuge, no stronghold, no shelter for shame apart from the Lord himself who is our refuge, who is our stronghold, who is our shelter, because this is his judgment after all. Wicked countenance in trying to stand against the Lord doesn't stand. Now wicked conduct. Around 640 BC, King Ashurbanipal of Assyria commissioned works of art that would stand as perhaps the defining and lasting legacy of the entire Assyrian civilization. Today, these works of art are known as the Lion Hunt reliefs of the Northwest Palace in Nineveh and remain as the last and greatest pieces of art to ever be created by the Assyrian people. At this time in history, a breed of lion known as the Asiatic lion roamed freely across the Middle East. And while they are endangered today, they were a menace for the people of Assyria. 
roaming down and taking out livestock and even the odd human being. In this way, the lion came to represent all of the dangers that menaced the people of Assyria in terms of strength, cunning, lordship, and brutality. And so for the Assyrians killing these creatures, it took on something of a symbolic meaning. If lions embody strength and brutality, then how much more the one who kills a lion? Early on, Assyrian kings went out into the wild on lion hunts. But in the later years, the lions were just rounded up and put into cages. And they'd go into the amphitheater. They were released from their cages. A little boy would be sitting on top, find this all in their artworks, and they'd lift up this little cage. You'd have the kings on their chariots with their bows at a safe distance, riding around and stabbing these creatures with their arrows. And it is this spectacle of a controlled performance killing that we find portrayed in the lion hunt reliefs of Assyria. These reliefs show the craft of the Assyrians at its most realistic and demonstrate the maturity of Assyrian art. That's another whole fascinating subject. The immaculate details of the human figures in the embroidered clothes and the details of the chariots, even the fingernails and the eyelashes of the people, all there in perfect detail. But while the human figures are depicted formally with little to no emotion on their faces, it is the faces of these lions that carry an almost human-like expressiveness. As the arrows and the spears strike them, it's though we see in the faces of these lions a cry of human sorrow. And it can be tempting as a modern observer to see in these reliefs the distillation of a mood that must have been enveloping the people of Assyria in its final years. Well, that mood is what Nahum picks up on here and mocks. 2.11, where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. You see what Nahum is saying here? It's like the Assyrians had deep down a sense of isolation and the need to assert themselves over the greatest of all wild beasts so that they could show the world that they were on top. But when you take a menacing lion as the standard of your success and the symbol of your nation, as that icon that you want to shelter your people in, you become the very menace that you despise. By calling out their symbol and status as ferocious lions, I think Nahum is giving us something of a window into the deep sense of national shame that was probably unconsciously going on for the people of Assyria. Friends, when people feel most vulnerable, when they feel exposed, they tend to lash out, kind of like a lion. If I can be candid with you, this is me. Uh, when I feel vulnerable, when I feel exposed, I, I can be a terrible person. And, and the way that comes out for me is often the way I learned to do that as a child when I felt uncomfortable for the first couple of times in my formative years, I would just revert back to that behaviour. For those early years in terms of how I learned to cope with my shame. You may not know it, may even deny it, but we all do this in one way or another. 
In one sense, shame is a retreat to a shelter. But often because these shelters are insufficient, we find ourselves coming out on the attack, trying to shame others out of our place of shame, trying to wound others out of our place of woundedness. And that psychologically makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if shame is this sense of feeling exposed, of feeling vulnerable, then, then you can console that by making others feel vulnerable and exposed along with you out in the field. More the merrier. There's comfort in the crowd. But this is obviously socially destructive. Shame affects us. It affects our relationships because shame leads to blame. Think about Adam and Eve again. They disobeyed God and ate from the tree. They're guilty. Now, guilt should lead us to confession and repentance. But when left unattended, guilt leads or tends to lead to shame. And shame doesn't look like confession. It looks like covering up and trying to hide behind the trees. But then God will come and he'll call out, where are you? Adam speaks up. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God asks, who told you you were naked? And without waiting for an answer, he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's identifying their guilt. And that would have been an appropriate time for Adam to confess, for Adam to repent and perhaps receive the grace of God. But he didn't. What did he do? The leaves didn't shelter his shame. So he went and hid amongst the trees. The trees didn't shelter his shame. So now Adam steps forward and tries in this large dished effort to hide behind his wife. The woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. <laughs> what does Eve do? Don't look at me. The serpent deceived me and then I ate. Guilt unattended leads to shame. And shame unattended leads to blame. All this finger pointing, it's disorienting as the siege of Nineveh described in Nahum chapter 2. Because when you're stuck in this shame cycle, it can be hard to know how you even got there. It can be hard to know, you know, what's true, what's false. And that can lead to hopelessness and despair, to lashing out like a menacing lion. Wicked countenance leads to wicked conduct. Look here now at verse 4 of chapter 3. And for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Here Nahum changes the imagery. Not only did Assyria tear at nations like lions, she seduced them like a harlot. Now normally harlotry or language of prostitution is associated with spiritual idolatry throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. Here, I think it's specifically referring to economic and political uh, prostitution or abuse. Assyria allured nations with the promise of prosperity and protection only to curse and entrap her subjects in a demoralizing cycle of dependency and oppression. Again, you can read the history books and see all of this. And this is where shame gets really complicated as it compounds sin. We can feel shame, not simply because of what we do, but perhaps more significantly because of what people do to us. There is such a thing as true victimization. We can feel deep, deep shame because of the things that people have done to us, things that make us feel exposed, things that make us feel vulnerable. 
And in that sense, there is a right attributing of blame. So please hear me, if you feel shame because of something someone has done to you, you are not to blame for that. That is not your fault. And that is not what Nahum is talking about here. The Bible says that no one makes an oppressor sin. Deuteronomy 24, 16, Ezekiel 18, 18 to 23. We have it in Scripture. And that's what this message of Nahum is all about. God is pointing the finger very clearly. There is a legitimate finger pointing as it concerns God. On a national level, Assyria has victimized the nations with her lion-like brutality and with her harlot-like seduction. But the message now that I'd like to impart is that whatever the cause of our feeling of shame, the reality of our shame that we feel is this sense of living without a shelter, the sense of feeling vulnerable, the sense of being exposed like we have no defense or dress when people look at us. Nahum's drawing that out of Assyria here by showing her shame to the nations. Chapter 3, verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart at sea, and water her wall? Verse 11. You will also be drunken and you will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy, the scatterer, the judgment of God. The city of Thebes was the first and great city of the Orient, remaining one of the world's leading cities for over 1,400 years. Like Nineveh, it appeared invincible, but like Nineveh, it fell. So here Nahum is taunting Assyria by saying that before God, the power of Assyria or Egypt, it is nothing. One commentator sums it up really well. Referring to this passage, Nahum is a master of metaphor. In 2, 1 to 13, Nineveh was a lion deprived of its prey. In 3, 1 to 7, a harlot shamed and exposed. Now, in this taunt song, Nineveh becomes a drunk, weak and dazed. Wicked countenance, wicked conduct. Finally, this afternoon, wicked defeated. Nahum 3, 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? I said last week that the language gap, the time gap, the cultural gap, the sin gap between God and us makes the Bible sometimes difficult to understand. Uh, the reason we have been going back and forth to Genesis today is to try and make sense of the strong language like what we've just read in Nahum chapter 3, verse 5, especially around nakedness. Throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, nakedness does not primarily refer to sexuality but rather a state of defenselessness, a state of helplessness, of being in a place of powerlessness. Now again, before sin entered the world, nakedness wasn't a bad thing. The Lord said it was good. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. The problem with nakedness in the Hebrew sense of the term is that in a sin-wrecked world filled with shame, nakedness becomes ripe for abuse. 
Because to a shameful person seeking shelter, looking at somebody who is naked, powerless, helpless, it's an easy place for them to plunder in an attempt to deal with their own shame. We do this individually. Assyria did it nationally. And God is against this, which is why we read here one last time, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Judgment came for Nineveh, and it was decisive. And what we have here in these frankly shocking verses is the bleak reality of those who are left exposed and vulnerable. The reality of those who have no shelter for their shame. You see, for God to lift up their skirts and have the nations look at their nakedness is for God to simply reveal the illegitimacy of the shelters that Assyria were trying to hide behind all along. Just as God saw right through the leaves, right through the trees, right through Eve, right through Adam, right through the serpent, right through the blame game, he's saying here to Assyria, I see right through you. I see right through your battle dress. I see right through your city walls. And let me prove it to you by exposing that to you and to the nations around. Difficult as it is, let me show you your shame. We need to couple this with other passages in Scripture that say the Lord takes no delight in the judgment of the wicked. This isn't something he's relishing in, folks. If we ever saw a graphic display of the proverb, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, it is right here with the city of Nineveh. Why does Nahum show such contempt for Assyria? Because sin is so contemptible. False shelters for our shame are no substitute for a saviour. Wicked countenance leads to wicked conduct, leads to wicked defeated, self-defeated in shame and rightly defeated in God's just judgment. Now we can catapult ourselves, if we can, from antiquity, the sands of the past, if we can catapult ourselves from there to today, to right now in the 21st century in this building, we need to ask ourselves, are we any different as a society? Has time given us the tools to build lasting shelters? Or are we just newer versions of these same people with modern means at our disposal? Think about social media. So-called cancel culture is literally a game of shame and blame. To be human is to struggle with sin. To struggle with sin is to have some sense of guilt. To leave our guilt unattended leads to shame. And shame unattended leads to blame as we seek out shelters in all sorts of illegitimate places and spaces. So let me ask you, where do you shelter? I didn't think that would be the question I'd be ending this talk on with the study of Nahum. But this is where the Lord has led me. Shame is a signal for my need of salvation, a reminder of God's provision for me in Jesus. And Jesus, you hear it said. You may be like, yep, been there before, Dave. But you need to hear it again and again and again. Jesus is a unique saviour because he is literally the only being of all religions or any manufactured idea of a human's brain 
in human history that actually talks to specifically the human universal problem of shame. In our world of vulnerabilities and insecurities came the Lord himself, came the Nahum one Lord whose ways in the whirlwind and the storm, who has clouds as dust for his feet. He came and he was born in a cow shed, for goodness sake. It's not what you'd expect for the, for, for the omnipotent God of all, right? A cow shed in a rural hick town on the fringes of the known world. From a cow shed to common people, this man, Jesus, sought out the shameful of society and gave them shelter. He called a woman outcast for her bleeding daughter. He called a tax collector despised by his people, disciple. He said to that wayward prodigal son, when he came home to his father, he's going to be welcomed home with a party. Again, none of this is what you would expect. But if God did what we would expect, we would have no need for his salvation because we would have figured it out by now. And in this, we all identify with the shortcomings of Adam and Eve because we can't figure it out. We try sowing fig leaves together. We try hiding behind the trees. We try hiding behind each other in the blame game of shame. It doesn't work. God sees right through every single milestone on our march towards self-destruction. So he came and did what only he could do, clothing us with the skin of sacrifice. From a cowshed to common people to the cross, Jesus takes his local association with the shameful and goes global. He was spat on, he was flogged, he was mocked and insulted. His clothes were ripped and he was stripped naked before the watching eyes of all people, including you and I as we read about this in the Bible, but more significantly before the eyes of the Father who had forsaken him in that moment. The wrath of the Father that we read about in Nahum chapter 1 and 2. And three, the Lord, our refuge, our stronghold. He went outside the city walls. He went outside his abode. That's Philippians chapter two. And, and this is Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. In other words, he was exposed. He was made vulnerable. He came to where we are at that he might pick us up and cradle us and walk with us and be our shelter? Who can stand before the indignation of the Lord? Who can endure the heat of his wrath? He can. He did on the cross. If you don't believe the Bible, let me, let me show you some other archaeology and history books that we can look at and talk about that. And think about this. If you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, like if you really believe that, okay, with me, then take that. Now come back to Nahum, find the worst, most graphic, most despicable description of judgment you can find from this little book and put it onto him. Then you begin to realize the judgment of Jesus is infinitely more unsettling than the judgment of Assyria because he knew no sin. The extent to which we find ourselves unsettled with the judgment of Assyria 
we read about in this book should be incomparably diminished by the unsettledness we should feel about the reality of the judgment Jesus faced on the cross for you and for me. Jesus did not deserve death, but he chose it. Why? Because God so loved the world. Now that sounds cliche because you've heard it before. Maybe you need to hear it again right now. And let's unpack it a little bit with a story. Conscious of time and I'm going to finish with this. A couple of weeks ago, my beautiful little three-year-old boy had to learn a very hard lesson. He went to bed hungry because <laughs> he was being silly, refusing to eat his dinner. My wife made the call. I need to learn how to be tougher with my love. My love. And oh, you would think the world was ending with the cries that I heard. So I picked up dear little Asher he just bear-hugged me, walked upstairs with him, went to the bathroom. He's there brushing his teeth through salty tears to help him get into his PJs. I'm trying to read him his little Bible, but he can't look at me. He's like literally facing the wall like this. And then I asked if he'd like to pray, and he said, no, 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 no. And he still can't look at me. Just looking at this wall. So I kind of spooned him, hugged him, and I prayed for him. And when I stood up to leave, he started sobbing, like intensely, uncontrollably shaking, like a little bit agitated. And he got up on his knees and he's like, I need mummy, I need mummy, I need mummy, I need mummy. I said, no, mate, mummy's downstairs. I've just said goodnight, it's time to go to bed now. He's like, no, 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 no. He kept on crying out for mummy. So I went and got Julie. I said, just wait here. I went and got Julie. She went in and she settled him. Five minutes later, Julie comes out. I said, what happened? She said how sorry he was for not cooperating and he wanted to make sure that we were okay. I felt rebuked because I left that room thinking, why aren't I good enough for my son? <laughs> Maybe it's because I'm at work all day, Julie's at home, she's got more relational capital, okay, I get that. But part of me genuinely felt inadequate in that moment. Like my son couldn't look at me in the eye and couldn't be comforted by me, his daddy. He needed his mummy because daddy wasn't good enough. Woe is me. Look at how I was making that about me. <laughs> I felt ashamed. But do you see, Asher felt ashamed for his actions. And because Julie is the one who made the judgment call, he needed to look her in the eye and he needed to have her look him in the eye to make sure that it was all okay, to see each other in this vulnerable state of nakedness and to say it is okay. He needed to be naked and not ashamed, so to speak. He needed to know that the judge still loved him. Love. Heard it all before, David. No, hear it again. Love overcomes shame. It does. People need to know that they have no reason to hide, that they have no reason to think you're going to be further shamed or abandoned when you come to the Lord. That's what Jesus does for you on the cross. It's his cosmic action whereby God picks you up, looks you in the eye and says, I love you. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus bore your shame, your shame, your shame, my shame. 
that thing you did for which you're guilty, that thing that was done to you for which somebody else is guilty, and yet you bear the shame. Jesus steps in. He lifts that up upon himself, and it is spat on. It is whipped. It is nailed to boards of wood. It is rejected by God, the Father who turns away. It is stripped naked. It is exposed, and it is exposed to the world, to the laughter, to the mockery. And it dies the death it deserves on the cross. Don't mourn your shame. Let it scream. Let its breaths become fewer and farther between and watch it die. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're not going to you know, still bear scars of your shame. But like our Saviour Jesus, whose scars are a testimony of his triumph over sin and shame, so your scars and my scars can be redeemed as a testimony of God's goodness in our salvation. The opposite of guilt is innocence. The opposite of shame is honour. Our God is a God who turns things upside down. He died and rose again. We need not be defined by our guilt and shame anymore because the cross of Christ and the empty tomb makes shameful people honoured. Our saviour is our shelter. And there needs to be a part three here, but let me just footnote it. (laughs) This is immensely practical once we get it vertically in terms of our horizontal distribution of God's grace and love for us. Because our shame is overcoming Jesus, we do not need to fear the judging eyes of other people around us who look at us as Christians. If love is the antidote to shame, then knowing that the love of God in Jesus is ours, we can look at others in the eye who are looking at us, even when they do wrong. And, and obey what Paul says, when reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. Though we have become and still are the scum of the world, the vile and refuse things, we need not be ashamed. 1 Corinthians 4, it's right there. Because Christ is our shelter. We have a security, we have a belonging, we have acceptance, we have a means and a model of our Christian life and conduct. So even our moments of trial are now infused and our moments of being wrongly done by so that we would naturally feel ashamed because they've just hurt us or abused us or done something to us, that now becomes redeemed and an opportunity to bear witness to our enemies, the love of God towards us while we were yet his enemies. Okay, I won't go too far down that road, but... This is how we demonstrate our love for the Lord, that we love one another. Okay, more to say. Let me just leave it there. The book of Nahum, Shelter and Shame. Uh, Dan, let's sing some songs and wrap this thing up. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, it's a joyful, it's a humbling, it's a beautiful thing. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Peace not like the world offers, but your peace that can make even a dark day appear as a new dawn in the light of Jesus. Father, I'm encouraged that even in the perfection of Eden, you anticipated our greatest human struggles with shame, and that just tells me all the more that our shame is important to you. I mean, you proved that, not in word, but in deed, by becoming a human when you didn't need to. 
And all of this just tells us that you actually are concerned about our shame and you want to do something about it. Thank you, Father, that it is in weakness that we are strong, in seeing how foolish we are that we have wisdom, that our brokenness is an occasion to be fixed, that our guilt can be forgiven, that our shame can be sheltered in the shadow of the cross. Lord, hear us today as we ask for your help. We come to church on Sundays and we hear the word spoken. We might take an interesting note to look up later and we forget. Change us now in this very moment so that we do not walk out of these doors the same that we walked in. This is, this is Christian growth and I'm asking that it would happen now, that you would melt hearts with the truth of the word that was spoken here today, Lord. And if it wasn't, then let it go. Father, may we walk out of here with zeal to run the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. And Lord, he's now seated at the right hand of that Father, of you, the Lord whose ways in the whirlwind and the storm, who has clouds as dust of his feet. And he is calling us all to know him and to know that that is where we are going. He's preparing that place. And I don't know about my friends here, my family here, but that means I should be able to stand up in the face of injustice and walk with purpose and hope because there's triumph through the trial. There is a dawn to the dark night. I just ask that we would feel that in a new way. I don't know how, but everyone here, Lord, would have the weight lifted knowing that the burden can be released off their back like a bag at the foot of the cross and it rolls away. May that be loosed, Lord, now. And Father, it, just, it would be inappropriate for me to wrap this up without saying, please hear us say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming after us to the very places and spaces where we need coming after. It's like you come into our house and you go into our closets, the places that are built for the purpose of hiding stuff. And you open it all up and you watch us. You look at us in our eyes. You empty the closets of every corner of our house. And you look at us the whole time. And you embrace us the whole time. And you assure us of your love and forgiveness the whole time. As far as the east is from the west. As far as one scarred hand from the other. Lord, you love us. And you have shown it. Not just in word, but in deed with your very life. May we believe it now. Not just in word but in witness, in our walk. May we live a life of gratitude for the cross. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.